Bienvenue and welcome back to the Land of Desire. This is your host, Diana, and this week, most French people are wrapping up their summer vacations. But here in San Francisco, it's cold, it's foggy, and for those of you who don't follow the show on Facebook, a certain podcaster's bathtub stopped draining and flooded her apartment, which is why this episode came out a little late. So this week, I can't help but find myself daydreaming of blue skies and warm sunshine. As it so happens, I'll be vacationing in just a few weeks, but in the meantime, I'll have to make do by reading about the travels of others. This week, let's travel back in time to an era of glamorous globetrotting, when luxury travel made the journey itself into the destination. Back then, there was one journey which stood above the rest, an artifact of French history which is now remembered only in the pages of Agatha Christie mysteries, a name which for 50 years conjured up images of celebrities, exquisite luxuries, and exotic destinations. Le Train Bleu, or The Blue Train. There were fireflies riding on the dark air and a dog baying on some low and far away ledge of the cliff, wrote F. Scott Fitzgerald in his 1934 classic, Tinder is the Night. In this scene, a dinner party gathers together around a dimly lit table. The diffused magic of the hot, sweet South had withdrawn into them, the soft, pawed night and the ghostly wash of the Mediterranean far below. The magic left these things and melted into the hosts and became part of them. Such is the dream of the French Riviera, a mythical realm where the sun meets the sea, where anyone who is anyone can do anything and everything. To this day, the French Riviera conjures up certain images of sophistication and exclusivity, an ice-cold martini brought to you on a silver tray by someone sweating in a cummerbund. On the Riviera, you're handed a cigarette holder and a satin turban before you're escorted to a dinner with Hercule Poirot. On the Riviera, you suntan wearing only your pearls. On the Riviera, you're free. And to get to the Riviera, you travel with the rich and famous on a gleaming train of midnight blue, which ferries you from winter to summer in extravagant ease. Back in 1763, vacationing in the Riviera wasn't quite the same experience. As the Scottish poet Tobias Smollett wrote, the journey across the British Channel left him in a most uncomfortable situation, tossed about by the sea, cold and cramped and weary, and languishing for want of sleep. A few years later, the farmer Arthur Young visited the Riviera despite an infrastructure dead set against his doing so. He wrote home, complaining, 
Will it be believed that from Marseille with a hundred thousand souls and Toulon with thirty thousand, lying in the great road to Antibes, Nice, and Italy, there is no regular carriage? To a person accustomed to the infinity of machines that fly about England in all directions, this must appear hardly credible. Smollett and Young weren't the only Britons making their way to this distant coast. Following the turmoil of the French Revolution, generations of British men and women visited the coast for their health, hoping to recuperate in the warm, sunny climate. Certainly, some people's health must have improved simply by leaving the smog and pollution of early pre-industrial revolutionary England behind. Other tourists' health may be due to the prescribed treatments of the day, alcohol and opium, both widely available in the port of Marseille. By the age of Napoleon, the French were already sick of the sick Britons, writing that British doctors were quote. Sending to our shores a colony of pale and listless English women and listless sons of nobility near death. However, the journey to your prescribed climate often posed a serious risk in its own right. As a doctor wrote in 1800, the difficulties with which traveling is attended in the southern parts of France and the general want of comfortable bedding are circumstances that render it prudent for a delicate person to take a bed and blankets with him. Of course, you also risked catching the bubonic plague or a spot of cholera along the way, so bringing a bed with you might not be a bad idea. It wasn't until 1834, with the arrival of Britain's Lord Chancellor, Lord Brougham, that the Riviera transitioned from hospital to hotspot. Traveling to Italy with his daughter, the Lord Chancellor was hated by some, loved by few, known by all. Just before making his way into Italy, a cholera epidemic closed the borders, and the Lord Chancellor was forced to hole up for the night in the village of Cannes, which was at the time a fishing village of no more than 300 inhabitants, with two streets. Yet Lord Brougham was utterly charmed by what he found, and he began building an enormous villa, which would soon entice England's best and brightest to his guest rooms. As his biographer wrote, at some time or other, every one of importance seems to have drifted down to see him in the south of France. Just around the time that one of the most powerful men in Britain decided to journey to the Riviera on a regular basis, it became a lot easier to do so. The dramatic expansion of the railway in the middle of the 19th century meant that by the 1860s, according to one timetable, a direct first-class train left Paris every evening at 7:15 and arrived at the Riviera at 9:32 p.m. the following day. But don't get confused and think that improved train travel meant fun train travel. By the 1870s, French railroads could reach the Riviera safely and consistently, but not pleasantly, as the Dean of Canterbury called the Paris-Nice express train, a wretched imposture of which any civilized nation ought to be ashamed, which compels invalids and delicate ladies to be shut up with brutal drunken men and. Averages about 22 miles an hour. Another passenger called the cars heated infernos, with every air hole hermetically sealed. Until 1860, 
A British passport was required to travel through France, and acquiring one was insanely difficult, unless you were personal friends with the Queen. Once you made it to your destination, the journey wasn't over yet. The odds were high that, just like the Lord Chancellor had done back in the 1830s, you'd come across a nasty patch of epidemic and be forced into quarantine. British travelers in the late 1800s sound more terrified of the boredom of quarantine than the threat of illness. No one can now eat a few plums too many in Marseille without alarming the sanitary officers of all the southern powers, wrote one grumpy reverend. Quarantine could last as long as a month, during which time you'd be locked in a room, passing your personal effects to an attendant to be fumigated while you're bored to tears. Charles Dickens documented this boredom in Little Dorrit, when his quarantined character, Mr. Meagles, cries out, The plague! That's my grievance. I have had the plague continually, ever since I have been here. I am like a sane man shut up in a madhouse. I can't stand the suspicion of the thing. I came here as well as ever I was in my life, but to suspect me of the plague is to give me the plague. Luckily for French and British travelers like Mr. Meagles, an enterprising Belgian named Georges Nagelmacher was about to upgrade the entire experience from steerage to first class. When Georges Nagelmacher's Compagnie Internationale de Wagonlis, aka the International Sleeping Car Company, debuted the Orient Express in 1883, it was a feat of bureaucratic wrangling. By wiggling through a million different diplomatic loopholes, Nagelmacher's trains could cross the entire European continent without asking passengers to share their passports at Border Patrol or eat and sleep in railway stations. For example, to prevent paying taxes on serving alcohol across international borders, Nagelmacher would divide his bar into separate cupboards. Here's the gin and wine you can serve when you're passing through France. Here's the gin and wine you can serve when you're passing through Italy, and so on. Train attendants were meticulously screened, so passengers could simply deposit their passports with the attendant, who was very trustworthy and would take care of border patrol while the passengers slept. Nagelmacher's trains were luxurious, with his signature sleeping cars promising a break from bone-jostling railway tracks. While the Orient Express lingers in the public memory through the works of Agatha Christie and others, this train was a trial run for the true masterpiece, a single train connecting Calais, the point at which British tourists first stepped foot on French soil, all the way down to Nice, with stops along every resort town of the French Riviera. The much-improved train service, along with early visitors like Claude Monet, helped inspire a fashion for the Riviera. Queen Victoria herself visited the Riviera no fewer than nine times. Each resort town began to develop its own little reputation. Here's the place for relaxation. Here's the town for partying. Here's the village for mischief, and so on. As the population of the Riviera grew tenfold to help support the growing tourist industry. Within a century, the city of Nice grew from 12,000 residents to 100,000. It didn't take long for the Riviera to become what we would today call a tourist trap and the complaints from sophisticated travelers sound pretty familiar today. 
As I have been told by local hotel keepers, the dinners we positively require and exact every day at the hotels are to them festive dinners which they would never dream of unless to welcome friends for a marriage or baptism. To provide this standard of food to many hundred strangers, the country had to be ransacked for a hundred miles around, wrote one Victorian-era doctor. As early as 1860, British tourists were complaining about the food, with one man grumbling that he was able to enjoy his meal only after my dinner has been stripped of its oil and garlic and has had some extra cooking bestowed on it. As early as 1866, the French were writing things like, There is a mass of English here this year. One hardly hears any other language spoken on the beach. For its first 50 years, the Calais Mediterranean Express and its flood of international tourists seemed unstoppable. But of course, Europe found a way to stop it. When Georges Nagelbacher began sketching his first international trains, one of the most critical components was the hardware underneath. Europe being Europe, every nation's railway tracks and fittings and brakes and other equipment were different from every other country's. This wasn't just the fault of red tape, it was a deliberate strategy to prevent a foreign invasion by rail. Georges found a simple workaround. He'd just equip his luxury trains with every single type of brake hose and steam pipe necessary for the entire route. In the 1880s, this made him a hospitality legend. But in 1914, this made him a threat. At the outbreak of World War I, the 120 Wagon-Lees express trains were scattered across Europe, and they quickly found themselves reconfigured to carry troops, ammunition, horses, food, and other supplies across now obsolete borders. World War I destroyed the continent's carriages and railway lines and commandeered anything left over, with no more iconic example than dining car number 2419D, which was for a brief moment in time the most famous railway car in the world. For it was in the middle of dining car 2419D that the generals of Europe signed the Armistice Treaty. Once the devastation of World War I made way for the glitzy wealth and careless escapades of the Jazz Age, the Calais-Riviera line was ready to resume service, boasting a jaw-dropping facelift. On December 9, 1922, a select group of aristocrats, celebrities, and journalists experienced the most splendid train ride in the world. The train consisted of 10 brand new, exclusively first-class sleeping cars, each carrying only 10 passengers, with a luxury dining car at the end offering five-course meals and freshly cut flowers. The old carriage wheels were replaced with modern wheels, which offered a smooth, jolt-free experience. The cars were upholstered in blue velvet and trimmed in mahogany. Finally, the carriages themselves, traditionally varnished brown, were now painted a shimmering dark blue with gold accents. The Calais Mediterranean Express had now transformed into Le Train Bleu. The papers could not contain themselves. Le Figaro wrote, 
Going to sleep in a country of mist and gray skies, then waking up the next day to visions of light and sunny places where one breathes a fragrant air, this poetic dream can indeed come true if you take the new lightning speed train. The golden age of luxury train travel had arrived. Between World War I and World War II, the most glamorous destination in the world was not a destination at all, but the transportation itself. Le Train Bleu inspired respect and awe amongst those too poor or unfashionable to claim a ticket. As one historian noted, during the height of the season, the service was grossly oversubscribed, and it became a privilege, albeit one that could be bought, to procure a seat and a berth. Those lucky enough to make it onto the train found themselves rubbing elbows with the world's most fabulous people. Before and after abdicating the British throne, the would-be King Edward VIII enjoyed attaching his own private railway car to Le Train Bleu. Charlie Chaplin, at the height of his career, enjoyed escaping the adoring crowds by finding peace and quiet within his own sleeping car. Agatha Christie, of course, bought a ticket so she could research her future classic, The Mystery of the Blue Train. Winston Churchill rode Le Train Bleu constantly, as did Coco Chanel, who was always on her way to meet her lover, the Duke of Westminster, richest man in Britain, and owner of a yacht named the Flying Cloud, which was waiting for Coco's arrival in Cannes. F. Scott Fitzgerald and his wife Zelda brought jazz-age partying to the train, while newspaper magnate James Gordon Bennett brought the checkbook. He once tipped a conductor 20,000 francs. But perhaps no one enjoyed the luxury of Le Train Bleu more than Cole Porter, who, along with his wife, booked an entire car for their group. A bedroom for each of them, two more for the valet and maid, a drawing room in which to take their meals, and another to entertain friends or to work. Of course, wherever the rich and famous go, opportunists follow. On the way to Monte Carlo, aspiring gamblers often found themselves in the presence of beautiful young courtesans, who used champagne and a lot of private sleeping cars to finagle money for themselves before it made its way to a betting table. As one historian wrote, Le Train Bleu was equal parts access and intimidation. Either you were a blue train person, or you were not. The journey began at the Gare Maritime, next to the docks where the British visitors finished their journey across the channel. At precisely 1 p.m., the train departed from Calais and rumbled into Paris by dusk. After hovering a few hours in the capital, the blue train pulled out of Paris by dinnertime, when diners enjoyed a five-course meal and brandy over the sound of the engines thundering below or often the rain lashing outside. Lulled to sleep by the brandy and the rhythms of the track, passengers retreated to their private rooms to sleep or, in the case of the courtesans, earn back the cost of a ticket. To draw up the blind the following morning, wrote one historian, was to experience deliverance. For British passengers especially, who only a day prior experienced the gloom and fog of a so-called summer, 
Now they greeted a world of terracotta roofs, white houses, and a sparkling Mediterranean sea. The words of one tourist from 1864 still ran true nearly a hundred years later. It was like passing from winter to summer. We feel that we have left behind the atmosphere of black frosts, moral and physical, and may expand ourselves happily in a much milder medium. The blue train reached Marseille first. Then it turned east to deposit its passengers along each of the resort towns of the day: San Rafael, Juan Lepin, Antibes, Cannes, Nice, or Monaco. Here, the celebrities, the journalists, the courtesans, and the aristocrats tumbled off the train and into casinos, beaches, restaurants, luxury hotels, and pleasure palaces. It's little wonder that the blue train soon became known as the train of paradise. When the train bleu made its debut, the Riviera experimented with something new. A year-round tourist season. Traditionally, the Riviera season lasted from November to April, so British tourists could escape the gloom of winter. By the 1920s, though, Americans like F. Scott and Zelda Fitzgerald were pioneering a summer season—a chance to party harder and pay less rent without the fusty Britons hanging around. By the 1930s, the hotels of Nice and Cannes were open all year. In 1927, a British campaign promoted the idea of the summer vacation, and it was a big hit. And then Coco Chanel helped make sunbathing into a craze. From New Year's Day to New Year's Eve, there was always someone on the beaches, in the hotels, at the bar, enjoying a good time in paradise. Little did the partiers know, the glitz and glamour of the French Riviera. Was in grave danger. In 1929, Americans spent three times as much as other tourists in the French Riviera. In 1930, following the stock market crash and the launch of the Great Depression, Americans stayed home. As casinos and hotels across the country faced bankruptcy and unemployment tripled along the Riviera, the French government hit upon an idea. Why not open up vacations to the rest of France? In 1936, as part of a socialist program of workers' rights, Parliament gave French workers 15 days of paid vacation per year, with reduced train fare for those heading south. Le train bleu, as desperate as anything else to survive the hard times, added second and third class sleeping cars to the train, and for a while. It seemed like this would be enough to muddle through. In 1938, Neville Chamberlain returned from Munich after appeasing Adolf Hitler. This moment proved to be an ill omen for the luxury train industry in two ways. First, just as it had happened 20 years earlier, a world war meant the destruction of the railroad cars, the railroad tracks, and often the railroad passengers themselves. Second. When Neville Chamberlain returned to England, he did not do so in an express train. He did so in an airplane. The world's rich and powerful people moved at new speeds by the middle of the 20th century, and they would not slow down again. For one last glorious summer, the rich and famous of interwar Europe partied on the Riviera, 
until Germany declared war on France. By June 1940, as France surrendered, Le Train Bleu filled with refugees fleeing Paris for the safety of the southern coast. The English consul organized two coal barges to bring the glamorous residents of the Riviera back home. Within a few years, Matisse's summer home became a canteen for German soldiers. The once tranquil skies of the Mediterranean filled with Allied bombers attacking the coastline. The beautiful, fragrant orange and olive trees withered on the vine without anyone to care for them, and locals went hungry as mines on the beach kept the fishing boats landlocked. By August 1944, Allied forces landed on the Riviera, and the same narrow roads, once filled with Rolls Royces and the laughter of the bright young things, now filled with sweating soldiers and artillery. For those who survived to see the liberation of France, however, getting stationed on the Riviera suddenly became a very lucky situation. Winston Churchill, who spent many years of his life and many millions of his pounds in the casinos of Monte Carlo, looked for any excuse to visit the forces stationed there after the war. One companion recalls Churchill in 1946, supposedly thinking about post-war European unification, but really he was looking across the water at Monte Carlo and murmured, how inviting it looks, how much I'd like to go there after dinner. But no, I mustn't. I promised my wife. After World War II ended, the glamour of the French Riviera returned. But the luxury trains did not. Rich and famous visitors preferred to fly out of Le Bourget Airport to the landing strips constructed along the coastline, while middle and lower class tourists preferred to travel on cheaper, standard train lines. Most of the grand train stations of France barely survived the war. The one great exception was the Gare de Lyon, the legendary point of departure for a century's worth of tourists heading south of Paris. And the Gare de Lyon, the famous buffet which served tourists waiting for their train, with its extravagant paintings, intricately carved wooden ceilings and Art Nouveau glass, it was retrofitted and christened with a new name, Le Train Bleu. The restaurant is a historical monument in its own right, with paintings depicting each of the original stations of the service. For most modern travelers, this restaurant is now the only Train Bleu they'll ever know. In 1875, British doctor James Henry Bennett wrote, Railways have all but annihilated space. A traveler may leave the London Bridge station at 7.40 on a Monday morning by mail train for Paris and be at Nice or Menton for supper the following day. One hundred years later, the wondrous overnight express cars of Le Train Bleu were replaced by high-speed TGV trains. A journey that would normally take 20 hours now took only five. Who cares about luxury when you arrive before you take your coat off? By 2003, a rebranding effort discarded the name Le Train Bleu for good. Finally, in December 2007, 
125 years after the debut of the Calais Mediterranean Express, a small crowd gathered in a train station in Paris. Would you like some champagne for your final trip? The steward asked the customers boarding the train. That weekend, the final sleeping cars of the French railway were retired for good. Before the final journey, however, the final passengers had an opportunity to say goodbye. One man, surveying the faded carpet and the dim lights of the sleeping car, told Le Parisien newspaper about his weekly trips on Le Train Bleu, stretching out over the course of 25 years. It was here, on this train, that he met Grace Kelly traveling back home to Monaco. It was here, on this train, that he met the great French actress Michelle Morgan on her way down to Cannes to pick up the first Best Actress award ever given at the festival. It was here, on this train, that he traveled between the bustling and hustling of Paris to the tranquility and bliss of the French Riviera. Every time, the man said, thinking over half a lifetime of memories, every time, this trip was a parenthesis in my life. Thanks for listening to The Land of Desire. For those of you who didn't already hear the news, the inaugural issue of the Land of Desire newsletter shipped last week. This monthly digest of high-quality journalism, entertaining links, recommended books, and tasty recipes goes out monthly. If you missed your chance to receive issue number one, don't miss the chance to receive issue number two. You can sign up at www.thelandofdesire.com newsletter. Thank you again to all my Patreon supporters whose generous contributions made the newsletter possible for everyone else. Thank you all for listening, and until next time, au revoir!